This is part three of study on the Genesis flood. And as I have entitled it, uh, a true historical event. And again, it is a study that I have tried to design to assure us that as Bible students, as believers in God, that all of the details of the flood account in Noah's day are reasonable and accurate, and we can have absolute confidence in them. Again, these are some pictures that I took when I was there uh, at, at this, uh, and, and this again is not a scale model, it is the exact, it has followed the exact dimensions of the ark laid out in Genesis chapter six. And this is a long view because I had to stand way back to be able to get the whole arc in the picture. So I'm way back from that scene. But as I said, you see the people there, a number of them have umbrellas and they're, they're really in character for being at the ark, you know, with the flood and everything. You see the water in the side too. But anyway, it's, it's a really, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating place to be. I'm gonna show you a lot of pictures today that I have brought into this particular part of our presentation uh, to help you see that when, you're, when, when people are questioning, well, how could all the animals be in the ark? And, and, and you know, is it big enough? And could it have sustained life? Could they, what they do with all the food? Did they have, was there a place to store it? We'll see, yes, everything fit in. And again, when they, when, when, when they built this ark, they built it to the exact dimensions laid out in the scriptures. And then they, in a very meticulous and detailed way, tried to demonstrate this is how everything could work within the ark. Now, of course, we're not given those details in scripture, uh, but certainly by implication, we understand that they had to be there in detail because Noah and his family and those animals were in the ark for a long time, for a long time. Not only during the 40 days that it was raining and the waters of the deep were coming up from the crust of the earth and the whole earth was flooded, but for a long time thereafter, while God caused the waters to abate and, and then dissipate and all the water levels go down and dry land started to appear again. So, this is something I want to try to get across and, and we'll look at some further details next time that I think will help you in your understanding and, and confidence in the faith of what was really laid out for us there in the scriptures. Now, again, why the flood? And I've emphasized this in every part of our study so far. Humanity had sunk into such depths of wickedness, we could say depravity, evil that God was moved to cleanse the earth and start over again with mankind. And so when you look in Genesis chapter six, beginning with verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So not just here and there, mankind was having a problem with evil thoughts, wicked acts and so on, but every thought and intent of his heart was only evil continually. And we're talking about everybody. Now, have you ever been around someone that uh, <clears throat> you had to automatically, and, and you knew this as soon as they walked up on the scene and started to talk with you or have some kind of interaction with you, you had to really be calculating in your head, uh, are they telling me the truth or are they lying? 
because when their lips moved, that was usually a sign they were lying. You know, and probably most of us have had experiences with individuals like that. But what if it wasn't just a matter of somebody lying, but they appeared on the scene and right away you, you started in your mind thinking, I better watch everything that they do right now because they're evil people. That's now they're, they're always doing something wrong and my life could be in danger or at least in physical harm. <clears throat> well, imagine that that was the way it was magnified all over the known world at that time. The thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So you come to one family, one family. The head of that family, Noah, is, is highlighted in the text. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The text set tells that he was a righteous man before God. And so humanity to this day can be thankful that we were spared through the family of Noah way back during that time. Now, <clears throat> you look at what happened, and of course this is just kind of an artist's conception of, of the serpent, and, and I don't believe the serpent that the form of which uh, the devil took looked like that. Uh, that would seem to be too scary for Eve. Probably came looking in a in a you know in, in much less dangerous or threatening form. But you get the idea that once Adam and Eve sinned, sin was in the conscience of mankind, and so mankind became entangled in sin, and that would be the way it would be for the rest of the history of mankind up until this day. But of course, when we get to Noah's day, it was much more pronounced. We look around us today and see, you know, boy, things are bad. How could it get much worse? But people have been saying that for generations and generations and generations. It could have got, it could get much worse. It was much, much worse, I would say, in the days of Noah. And so that was the state of humanity and the world during his, during that day, during his life. Now, God gave Noah very specific instructions as to how to design the ark. In Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 14, the text tells us, God speaking to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So, the material of the ark is specified by God. We still don't know what gopher wood was or maybe is today. You know, we certainly don't call anything gopher wood. Maybe it's been speculated that perhaps it was oak, oak being a very hard wood, uh, kind of difficult to burn if you want to put it in your fireplace a lot of times. But we don't know that. So we, all we can do is, is speculate. But God said gopher wood. Now, obviously, that must have been a wood that was plentiful in the area where Noah and his family lived so they could gather it and, and manufacture the different parts to put into the ark. It took them a long time because of the technology that was available to them at that time. It's certainly different from what we have available to us today. And this is how you shall make it, God told Noah. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and that would be on the, on the uh, outer deck of the ship uh, or above it. 
and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it with a uh, to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So within the ark, three decks and the interior. And then you've got the deck, the outer deck, which is the surface, the outer surface of the ship. And then you've got this, and, and I, I wondered for a long time as I would study the text earlier in my life, was there only one window up there, maybe one rather small window? Uh, but probably what we're looking at is a line of windows along the upper deck, but above the surface of that deck. And interesting, and that makes a whole lot more sense, I believe. So make it with lower second and third decks. Now, obviously, there was no engine. Engines were not invented yet at that time. But also, we noted that there were no sails either. And there were no oars, no place for oars to be stuck out from the, <coughs> uh, under, uh, from the, uh, under the, uh, the water level of the ship where, you know, there could be uh, men working those oars and moving the ship along. Uh, no, there weren't any holes down there. There were no oars. There was no rudder. And the point that I brought out was the ark was not made to go anywhere. It was not designed by God to travel anywhere on its own, but rather it was designed to safely float on the surface of the waters and preserve life within. And that would be the lives of Noah and his family and all the, all the animals that were to be saved. First Peter chapter three and verse 20 and 21, Peter refers to the ark and Noah and his family within the ark. He says, which sometime were disobedient, talking about mankind in general, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, we think about the long suffering of God. Peter in second Peter chapter three and verse nine in response to the scoffers, as you look in the, big, in, in the first half or so of that chapter, who said, they were saying, hey, when's Christ coming? You, you, we thought he was coming right away or quickly. He's, it, all this time has passed in a relatively short number of years from the time Jesus ascended back to heaven until Peter wrote Second Peter. But there were scoffers already out there. And they were saying the sun comes up, the sun goes down every day, the seasons keep, you know, coming around on their, on their cycle all, every year. When's he coming? When's he coming? And so they were scoffing at belief in Christ coming back for a final day of judgment. But Peter had said, hey, you know, with God, a thousand years is as a day and a day is a thousand years. And in verse 9, he says, God is not long-suffering toward us, but he is, he is exercised, or rather, God is not uh, slack concerning his promise, but he's, he's exercising a long-suffering nature or patience with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's giving mankind time to come to repentance. When it says the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, that's what I believe we're, what we're to understand. It took Noah and his family over a hundred years to construct that ark and for it to be ready to do what God told him to design it to be able to do. And so during that hundred plus years, God was giving people an opportunity to repent. Now, you certainly know that people would come by and say, what in the world are you building there? And, and of course, Noah would respond, wouldn't he? Truthfully, 
building an ark. Why? <laughs> because it's going to rain one day and flood the earth. Now, the scripture account indicates, I believe, that it never rained until that point. But God watered the ground with a mist. We might liken it to a dew today in some parts of the country. And, and, but they didn't believe. They, they undoubtedly scoffed at Noah, you know, on a repeated basis. So, but God was giving them time while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water, saved by water. We might think, wait a minute, doesn't, shouldn't that read saved from water? Saved by water. The waters lifted up, the waters of the flood lifted the ark to the surface and saved those who were inside. While everybody, the rest of humanity on the outside and all of the animals on the outside of the ark drowned in those waters. They perished. So the like figure whereunto even baptism. So Peter makes that comparison there, an application. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So they were saved by water in the ark. Water is the subject of the context there, the element of water. And Peter says baptism. Baptism obviously in water is understood inherently within that text. We're saved by baptism as we're baptized into Christ. So there's a lesson for us there. Now, the waters of the perfectly designed ark raised that ark to the surface and saved the physical lives of those within. Peter made that comparison and application that through baptism, it is through the waters of baptism that a person is saved spiritually. So the one, the waters saved them physically. Through baptism, the water, through the waters of baptism, a person can be saved spiritually. Interesting comparison that Peter makes there. Now, again, the dimensions of the ark, the ratio of those dimensions. 300 cubits, about 450 feet long. You think about that. Well, that's far longer than a football field, isn't it? In fact, it's about football field and a half in length, right? 300 cubits, 50 feet, uh, 50 cubits wide, about 75 feet, 30 cubits high, about 45 feet, and that's a ratio of 300 to 50 to 30. And it was discovered many years later, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later, in fact, thousands of years later, that these dimensions are the perfect ratio for a huge ship be built for seaworthiness and not for speed. Perfect ratio. How did Noah know that? I don't think Noah did know that. He simply followed the design instructions from the one who knows everything the all-knowing one, and that's God. He told him how to build that ark. God, the designer of the universe, also knows how to design an extremely seaworthy ship. So here's a picture of the ark from the bow, from in front of the bow. And you don't really get the full sense of the size of that, that ship, that boat. It is an enormous vessel. You might think, Think back to that long view that I photoed of the whole length of the ark, but here is just from the, from the in front of the bow. I wanted to show you a number of pictures. 
you know, what's, in, what's outside the ark, we can be impressed with the ex- exterior of a ship or of a boat of any kind. But really, the bones of that vessel are what's inside. That's what's going to hold the ship together. And so you think about, and, and I've said before earlier in this particular study, for many, many years, great many years of my life, I always thought about the flood in Noah's day as being, you know, rain falling and the waters just, you know, kind of rising rather gently, not that big of a, you know, uh, an event as far as, you know, movement back and forth. Now, there would be some and all that. But I came to understand much later as I studied more carefully and realized it was not just rain that fell from the atmosphere that caused the flood, but the text says that God opened the fountains of the deep. And there's tremendous amounts of water in the crust of the earth. Now, how did God open the fountains of the deep? Cause the earth to crack open? Probably through some, some, some uh, uh, earthquakes, but also probably through volcanic eruptions and volcanoes produce a great deal of water. And so what we're, we're seeing is not just a gently rising surface of the water through rain falling, but we're, we're talking about a cataclysmic event, not just in that it flooded the earth, but in how it flooded the earth. When you're talking about volcanic eruptions and earthquakes, that's going to cause tremendous disruption in, in, in the waters, both below the surface and above the surface. We're talking about tsunamis and tidal waves on an ongoing basis. They're going to be sweeping across the face of the globe. You're talking about violent, violent flooding. And it goes on for 40 days until God stops the rain and stops the fountain of the deep. But then it's going to take a long time for the waters to recede. And so the ark was enormous. And until about 1858, it was the largest floating vessel that had ever been built. Now you think about how many years that was, thousands of years before we ever built anything that compared to that as just a floating vessel, fully capable of housing Noah's family, all the animals that were were to be saved within the ark and all of the food and supplies that they would need. We'll look at some of the technicalities of how they could secure some of those supplies as we go along. But I wanted you to see, I said said the bones, the interior bones within the vessel is what really keeps it together and keeps it from being just ripped to shreds by the, the, the violent waves that had to be hitting up against that ship on an ongoing basis for those 40 days and 40 nights. You look at those massive beams Now today, you wouldn't see those wooden beams there that much. You would see steel girders and everything, but of course they didn't have steel girders back then. So there's where the gopher wood comes in. It must have been a very strong wood. And think about all of the pains that Noah and his his family had to take, probably him and his three sons primarily, to carve out, to shave down, to cut all of those beams to the dimensions that they needed to be at to be able to support the interior of that ship so that it would stand firm against the violent ongoing waves. Continual violent action against it for all of that time that God was flooding the earth. Here's just some more. And when you're standing there looking at them, they are massive, 
massive and it's just all over the place. There are some, uh, and maybe this would be something similar to what Noah and his sons built in the ark as far as, as uh, walkways to go up between, you know, from one deck to the other, or maybe they had to climb ladders, I don't know. But this is just, again, a, a conception. And of course, as people come to tour the ark, then that makes it easier for people to tra- you know, to tra- traverse from one deck to the next and so on and back down. And of course, the Disabled Americans Act you know, would require those ramps to be there so for people who were disabled in any way or handicapped physically in any way. And so I just wanted to, to present over and over again all of these pictures that just help you see there's a lady sitting up against one of those massive beams. There's another one right over across from her, and this just one after another on down the line. Now again, remember, we're talking about this vessel is 450 feet long, a football field and a half. And so all of this incredible massive structure within is all over the place. And there's a fella, you know, climbing a ladder. And they probably had some ladders there uh, to maybe allow them to get more quickly from one deck to another or to get up to a certain area that they wanted to, you know, focus upon. Now, how did all the animals fit? And next time we're going to talk about that in more detail probably. But people will think, well, what about all of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of different kinds of animals? We're talking about kinds, and so we're not talking about within every species of having every different uh, form within that species, but we're talking about basic kinds of animals. And so you, you can think about, well, dogs and coyotes and wolves can all interbreed. They're a kind, okay, and maybe throw in some other ones as well. Um, And so the same kind of thing can be understood about cattle. You've got different breeds of cattle, but you don't have to have all those different breeds. You just have to have that kind in there. And so they're actually, and, and they've done a great deal of research on all of this. So they have calculated that there were 1,398 animal kinds. And when you start multiplying that by how many the text says of the clean animals and the unclean animals that Noah was to take into the ark, you come up with, they came up with 6,744 separate animals. Now you're talking about, you say, well, well, still, how would all that, how would all that, all of those fit in the ark? Think about how big a cow is. Think about how much he weighs and so on. God did not tell Noah that he had to bring full-grown animals in every case, did he? He just said, bring in the animals, the kinds. And I think God, were to understand, guided those animals to come when it was the right time. And also think about how many of those animals, those different kinds, were birds. Or you ever seen a chipmunk running around? Doesn't take up much space, does he? You know, there's a little guy about like that, or a squirrel, or a rabbit, or something like that. So you're talking about a whole lot of little animals. And this is kind of a, you know, scale model coming up showing the possible, just a reasonable possible internal design model if you're looking at this from the side. And this is, this is a scale model, but it's like 1 to 48 or something. So it's just 
and you know a, a, a conception as to a possible way that the ark could have been divided up in the interior for all of the animals and also Noah and his family to live there. But everything fits when you start to think about it. I'm not sure I can read all of those numbers. I, as I looked at them on the computer, I could see all of them, but you're, you're talking about certain numbers like 322,000 gallons of water needed and, uh, and, and then going on and on from that. And you know, if you want to pull this up on our website, you can do that and you can look more closely at the numbers. But what it does is it goes down and, and it, it lets the reader understand that everything fits within that structure, within the ark. So now here, just again, some ideas of cages, that different animals could be in. And you go on, they needed food, they needed water, they needed supplies. So supplies being food for the animals and also supplies to be able to take care of themselves and others and so on for Noah's family and all of the animals. And so here again, you've got a whole lot of small animals. So you've got, you can have small cages for the animals. And you also have this massive interior within the ark so you can put in all kinds of shelving and there's an idea of pots or cisterns that may be holding water you need a whole lot of water there now somebody says well what happens when they run out of water they're going to be on that ark for a whole long time not just 40 days but for months after that what do you think it's doing outside raining okay you think the design of the ark could have been such that yeah I, I've seen farms where they have cisterns and the cistern catches the rain coming you know running off the roof of the of the of the house into a gutter that leads to a spout that feeds it over into a cistern that gathers the water they could have done something like that easily it's raining every day for 40 days and 40 nights. But, and so they can store it in, in pots, keep replenishing those particular supplies. And there's another concept of what it could be. There's sacks that could be sacks of grain or meal. And you could put a whole lot of those in such a place. Slimy solutions are, are you know, they're talking there about some of the insects that they could still keep there and let breed and that might help feed some of the reptiles on board. And they talked about how that could easily be done. You can't quite see from this picture, but that's simply, I believe we're to understand a big water pot standing might be five or six feet high. And there are two cages with animals on either side. And that big water pot has some spouts coming down, I believe, where the animals could drink water from that, those, that, that water source. But notice, you th where did Noah and his family live? Well, if you've got room for thousands of animals in little cages a lot of times, but in bigger cages for some of the bigger animals, but again, remember, Noah did not have to bring full-grown animals onto the ark in every case, but you have plenty of room for living quarters. Now, you're not going to have an eight-room apartment, you know, for each family there, but you only have eight people. And so you have Noah and his wife. They're going to have their living quarters. You have three sons and three daughters-in-law, and so they're going to have their living quarters. Um, 
you grew up in one room a lot of time, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And you think back about our pioneer days in this country, they'd build a house that was basically one room. My mother-in-law went to a one-room schoolhouse when she was in school. And so it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be opulent. It just has to be living quarters that are, that are uh, capable of taking care of a couple. And so here are some different artist conceptions again of possible living quarters. They could even have a place where they could come together and pray together and worship God together that would be separate from their living quarters. And then you have <coughs> kitchen areas where they could store their food uh, and have it ready for their sustenance on a daily basis. And that would have, would have had to have been something that they'd have to pay a lot of attention to. They could even have grown some food on the ark. And here you think about that window going all along. You know, again, it's, it's up above the deck, the upper deck, the outside of the ark. But you've got this window all along, probably all along that deck. And if that's, say, 400 feet long, then you've got sun coming in through there, or, or at least light. Okay, I know it's raining for 40 days, but you've got light coming in through that window, and they could have, you know, pots and, and you know, uh, square gardens and so on with some root vegetables and some fruits, perhaps, that they could grow in there along that time, and so that could bring some sustenance too. Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 21, God said, you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be, for, it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded, so he did. Now, remember, the text from Genesis chapter 2 through Genesis chapter, well, basically through the flood, seems to indicate that meat was not eaten during those 2,000 or so years in the history of mankind. Maybe not also by wild animals, but grain was apparently, grain and fruits and vegetables were apparently the main sustenance. Seems to be the case. So you don't have to have, you know, necessarily this big grill for cooking hamburgers and steaks and all of that. That might frighten some of the animals aboard too, by the way, uh, if, they, if they saw you doing that. But you see you've got storage for fruits, you've got storage for vegetables. Um, some of that might run out, but again, they could have grown some of that because there's like a, you know, an enclosed garden area where they could grow some of the, uh, the, the coarse, uh, like cabbage and, and things like that down in Louisiana or down along the Gulf Coast, you have gardening going on. You have gardens that are, that are spring and summer gardens. Then you have winter gardens too. They don't grow all the same things in the winter that they do during the, the spring and summer, but you go out there and they've got beautiful green gardens growing all winter long and it's providing sustenance. There's an idea of a possible kitchen setting and cooking and baking, they would do that. Well, you say, okay, well, where's it? There's an oven. Okay, there's a clay, probably a clay oven that's been built there, and it probably would have been used pretty much every day to feed Noah and his family. And so all of that fits. All of it is reasonable. All of it is understandable and just lives up to common sense. Again, you see the ark was a huge, massive vessel and it had plenty of room to do all that God intended it 
to be able to take care of. And for those hundred plus years, we don't, we don't see all of the times that God perhaps communicated to Noah. We see, we see sections. And so he told him how to design the ark, at, see, at least the dimensions. And he told him about the food to bring into the ark. But God probably continued to communicate with Noah along the way and give him some understanding of, of just some specific design to be within the ark. And, and certainly Noah and his family as they were building it, they could have used their own brains and said, you know, okay, we're going to need a place to live. We're going to need some kind of, of food storage. We're going to need, you know, an oven to be able to cook on on an ongoing basis. That would all be common sense, be logical reasoning. And so, again, all of it makes sense. Prayerfully and hopefully, again, this is helping all of us to really come to understand that when we read the text of the flood in Genesis, in Noah's day, it is true. We can have absolute confidence in it. But it's not just that particular text, but because when we see how all of this really does fit together, that can help us to have even stronger faith in all of God's word and in everything he instructs us and tells us and promises us through his teachings. This evening, this evening, if your faith has been such that you've been holding back a little bit, prayerfully and hopefully that any doubts that might have been there, any weakness that might have been there is being wiped away. And maybe you're at the point where you say, I, 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 I believe it all and I'm ready to be baptized into Christ. Or... I recognize that maybe I haven't been as dedicated in my faith as I should, and I want the church to pray for me. Or I want to talk to somebody. I want to study some more about more specific things that pertain to my life, my spiritual well-being. We're here for you. If you need to come at this time, our invitation song is number 882, 882. If you need to step forward, we encourage you to take that step while we sing this song. If you need to talk with somebody private, in private, we're here. Just ask us. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together and sing?